Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Students on U.S. college campuses are changing. Today, more than one in five college students are parents, nearly four million people. How do they juggle earning a degree and raising kids. Today Where We Live, we explore this with author Fiona Pearson. She's a sociology professor at Central Connecticut State University who's written the book Back in School, How Student Parents Are Transforming College and Family. Now coming up, we'll hear from student parents completing their degrees in Connecticut. We'll also find out how other states are responding to the needs of this student population. Are you one of them? You can join us. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Fiona Pearson into our studio. Again, she's sociology professor at Central Connecticut State University and author of this book. One of the reasons why we're talking about about it, uh, student parents today. Uh, Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I was uh, when I was reading uh, your book, I, I chuckled at the title of the first chapter. Uh, it's, it's called "We're Not Living in the Old School Anymore." So uh, I mentioned you're a professor. How long have you been teaching, and how have you seen the demographics in your classes changing? Um, I've been teaching since the early '90s. Um, and the first institutions I taught at, I was teaching very traditional uh, age students. Um, but in uh, 2000, I began this this project. Um, at that time, I was pregnant with my first child. And at that time, I was working towards my um, doctoral degree. And I was interested in beginning to explore the effects of welfare reform in 1996. Um, and in particular, I was interested in how welfare policy and some of the reforms that took place in 1996 was beginning to change the um, opportunities for students who were parents, specifically. Because with welfare reform, uh, before 1996, it was an entitlement program, uh, which meant that as long as a, a parent was under a certain income, they qualified for the cash public assistance. After 1996, the program became a state block program where states became responsible for administering the, the grants. And um, it became a work fair program, a job fair program, which meant that students who were enrolled in those public assistance programs now had to look for low-wage labor, look for jobs in order to qualify even for the cash assistance, which meant that students who were parents who were previously pursuing their college degrees and applying for these programs could no longer um, qualify for that program unless they worked an additional 20 hours as well. And if you're a parent, particularly a single parent, and you're required to work 20 hours a week for your cash assistance and you're attending college full-time, and I tell my students now, college is a full-time job. If you're attending school full-time, that's 15 hours in class time and an additional 35 hours outside of study and prep time. That's a full-time job. Um, those student parents couldn't do it. And so I was interested in researching some of those uh, experiences of student parents at that time. And so how did you reach out to some of these students uh, because you wanted to learn more about um, what they were juggling, but also for them to be open enough to talk about very candidly about what their lives were like? And obviously, you're a sociologist, so you've got some uh, 
uh, tricks in your uh, toolkit, so to speak? <laughs> it, it helped in 2000 that I was pregnant. So it helped when I met with student parents. I was visibly pregnant. And um, actually, that was a way of establishing rapport early on. Uh, we started off our conversations uh, sharing the best diapers, uh, the best daycares in the area. Um, so that was a way of, of, of breaking in. Um, and so that was my, my doctoral research, and, and that was down in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And this was soon after um, welfare reform had happened. So I was also interested in looking at how some of those policies were trickling down to the front lines. That oftentimes, changes made at the federal level in terms of legislation, but we don't know how that's going to actually look on the ground in, in public assistance offices. And so that's what I was exploring then. Uh, in 2004, I moved up to Connecticut. And at that time, I was finishing up that work. I had collected all that data. I was finishing dissertation. I finished that up in 2006, had a second daughter in 2004. Um, and then in 2006, when I finished that, my, my program and had my degree in hand, I was applying for tenure track positions. And that's when I started at Central Connecticut State. Um, I wanted to continue my project with student parents at that time. But what I was finding um, I couldn't find the student parents who were receiving TANF in Connecticut that I was finding back in Atlanta, Georgia. And there were a few reasons for that. One, um, in 2005, the TANF policy was reauthorized and it restricted the opportunities for students who were pursuing degrees. So there were no students who were receiving TANF or in the state of Connecticut's TFA, Temporary Family Assistance Cash Benefits, and attending college. Basically, they had been um, steered away from college and uh, were instead pursuing jobs so that they could continue to qualify for those benefits. Who steered them away? Um, the program, the rules of the program, uh, the program itself, because of the requirements, um, those those work requirements, case managers. And part of my original project, I also interviewed case managers down in Atlanta. But case managers themselves were very divided about how they felt about those programs. And some were willing to work with students in terms of find um, job preparation <laughs> programs that could also qualify for their college education and, and kind of work the system, if, if you will. But most of them just said, no, you, you need to drop out of school. You need to get a job if you want these assi this assistance, or you have to figure out school on your own, um, which is what happened to some of the students in my sample, is they just decided to not even apply for those benefits, mm -hmm. even though they qualified. I imagine uh, trying to go to school full-time uh, and also juggle a job uh, to fit the job requirements and raising children. It's impossible to do all of those things. So when you were talking with student parents, did you see that the time it took for them uh, to finish a degree uh, took much longer than what we call traditional students? Absolutely. Well, in my sample, um, I had students that I interviewed ranging in age from 18 to I think the oldest was, was 54. Um, and so those students had a variety of experiences. Some of those students were, were teen parents um, and had continued straight from high school and were in college and had not yet taken a break, at least at that point um, in their college career. Many of those parents, however, had stopped out over the years. Many of them may have started back in the 1990s um, or early 2000s, stopped out. Um, for various reasons, uh, taking care of children, um, having to work to pay bills, um, and came back later. So there was great variety within my sample, too, in regards to uh, the ages and the experiences. 
In studio with me is Fiona Pearson, a sociology professor at Central Connecticut State University, author of the book Back in School, How Student Parents Are Transforming College and Family. You can join our conversation, especially if this fits uh, your uh, description, if, if you're working as well as raising children and going to school. You can join us. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, when, when we were researching uh, doing this show, uh, we hear and see the description that student parents are often an invisible population on campus. Why is that, Fiona? Yes. Um, it takes a great deal of courage for student parents to come out as parents on campus for a variety of reasons. Um, as I mentioned in my sample, some of my students were very young student parents, um, and they very much were fearful of the stigma of being having been a, a teen parent and how individuals on campus, their, their student peers, their professors might evaluate and potentially stigmatize them as a result of the fact that they had their first child when they were, were teenagers. And older students similarly found stigma in the classroom in that they were fearful of playing what one parent called the the parent card, um, feeling like they need special exceptions um, in the instance when a child is sick or in the instance when um, a student needs to ask for an extension because family members needed tending to. Um, and they were fearful of coming out as student parents for some of those reasons. Mm. Uh, we hear, um, looking at the statistics, uh, uh, many of the student parents uh, nationwide, uh, the majority of them are women, are women of color. But when you're talking with uh, male students, uh, tell us more about some of that stigma that you were just mentioning. Absolutely. Um, where I found men, the men, I had there were ten fathers who I interviewed for this study, and where men tended to face most of the stigma was actually in the household and at home. Um, I have an entire chapter where I explore student parents navigating home life and trying to help their understand their family understand the importance of what I refer to as educational labor. Um, when a student is sitting reading a book on the couch for class, it looks like leisure. <laughs> it can look like pleasure, and so oftentimes family members would. Um, not necessarily see the time that student parents were spending on homework as as valuable. And for the the men in particular, um, student or extended family members uh, often would explicitly confront some of the men in my my sample regarding um, their going back to school and not necessarily working and earning an income. So taking their job as as breadwinner and um, having someone in the house hold instead uh, take on that um, responsibility or turning to student loans for income in the household. And so extended family members would challenge the masculinity of some of those, men's in those men in regards to their um, breadwinner role. Mm. Uh, when we again look at the, the demographics of student parents, uh, are they more likely to attend a two-year versus a four-year school? They are more likely to be in, uh, enrolled in community colleges, yes. The vast majority of student parents are enrolled in community colleges. Um, but we do see a significant percentage of students in our four-year universities. Um, they, as you cited before, are often invisible because they are often fearful of bringing children to campus, and particularly on those college campuses where there isn't, for example, a daycare or child care center, there isn't a, a presence of children on campus, then that will prevent parents from bringing their children to campus, even if visiting for with a, a, a professor, for example. I make sure in my office I have coloring books and, and crayons, uh, pictures that my daughter have, has 
painted over the years. And that creates an environment where students know that they are accepted. Um, but that's not the norm across a college campus. That's not a traditional office. Mm. Again, you can join our conversation. The number eight six zero seven. 888-720-9677, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I should mention, uh, also in studio with uh, me is a student parent, Brandy Salito, a graduate student at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, Brandy, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you for having me. So we just heard a, a snapshot from some of uh, Fiona's research and uh, talking with students that she's had over the years. Uh, you're someone uh, who has been uh, uh, trying to earn a degree, or now you're earning your, your graduate degree, while also so balancing family. So tell us a little bit about your background and um, uh, when did you have your child? Uh, I was a teen mom. I had my son. I was 17 and um, it was it was very difficult. I had not I was not able to graduate uh, traditionally to get my high school diploma. And so um, I had to start taking night classes. My son was born in June. I was scheduled to graduate. And so um, I left the school and uh, started taking um, night classes for the GED program. And um, so I, it took me about two years to complete that program just to get my GED. And uh, so then I, I mainstreamed right into the community college. Um, uh, and this, we were based in New York at the time. And um, it was, uh, like Fiona said, it was just, it's a very challenging. Um, I had to be very proactive. Um, we didn't have social media back then. My son's now 20. Um, but so I just had to be very proactive in networking and, um, you know, speaking to my professors and um, looking for, you know, any way to be able to, to balance all of it. You know, uh, my son came to a lot of classes with me um, when that viral video went, um, you know, with the t professor, you know, bouncing the baby during a lecture. Mm -hmm. I mean, my son and I laughed because I was like, oh, there, that was us. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, I, I had to, you know, bring him to school, and um, it was it was very challenging mm -hmm. uh, to balance it all. How did you see your professors, even your fellow classmates, responding to you when when you did have to bring in your son at times? Um, it was totally mixed. Uh, some professors were just like, you know, so proud, and you know, you know, your grade, my grades were very strong. So a lot of the professors were were very supportive of me, and I was able to bring my my son to class with me. Um, and then there were others that were just, you know, completely not acceptable of it and found that um, it was a distraction to the other students and that um, it was not a, a place for a child to be. Um, so it was, it was definitely mixed. Um, I, was, I was lucky enough to, to work on campus, so I was able to bring him with me um, on campus pretty much everywhere. And um, so the professors that did not want to see him in class. You know, I had uh, secretaries down in the admins or Broussard's office that uh, he he made. I would bring him down there. Mm. So, so what what kept you going, Brandy? Uh, given the fact that uh, I understand you didn't also didn't have any family support, so you're really doing this on your own. And uh, it's it's one thing to uh, go to college or university and try to deal with the course load, but as you mentioned, you were also balancing a young child. Uh, why didn't you give up? I I just it was always my dream to to finish school and. Um, Employability was it was major for me. I always just knew, uh, without a degree, I would not be able to make um, the most income that I needed to survive. And um, you know, when he was younger, I I did jobs like cleaning houses and dog walking and 
being a personal assistant and, you know, jobs where I could bring him to work with me. And I just knew that I needed to finish my degree to be able to, you know, be a homeowner and to be, you know, to be able to make enough income to survive and to take care of him properly. We're going to continue our conversation here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As we focus on student parents, uh, the number of student parents across the country is steadily increasing. How are colleges and universities responding to this particular student population? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about student parents. More than one in five college students are parenting children today, and more than half of them are single parents. How have college and university campuses responded to these so-called non-traditional students? So we're exploring that question and more. You can also join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Uh, right now uh, in studio with me is Fiona Pearson, sociology professor at Central Connecticut State University and author of the book, Back in School, How Student Parents Are Transforming College and Family. We also heard from Brandy Salido, a graduate student at Central Connecticut State University. And uh, before we continue talking uh, to student parents, I I did want to ask you, Fiona, about uh, support for student parents on campuses. Uh, We heard from Susan in West Hartford, who says that she attends UConn, where there's no support for student parents whatsoever. So can you talk to us about um, the resources that are available? And do they vary depending on if someone's at a community college, a state university, um, like uh, UConn? Absolutely. No, there's great diversity. Um, and one of the problems, the student parents who are a part of the show, I were talking about this as we were waiting in the green room, um, is the lack of coordination in terms of communication about the resources that are available on various student campuses. So, um, for example, I know that uh, I several years back I went, and after the... Um, CSCU system um, consolidated. That's the 12 community colleges and the four CSU universities in Charter Oak. Um, Michelle Van Cor, a colleague of mine at Southern Connecticut State, and I met with um, the then provost at the Board of Regents to talk about how we might best coordinate um, information about some of the resources that are available for our student parents within the system. We thought that maybe now that we were this new system, this was something that we could coordinate and work on. And I remember in that meeting very, very vividly, um, the then provost saying, well, from what I see, all of those campuses have childcare. It's taken care of as if that box had been checked. Um, and I remember <laughs> looking down and then thinking, well, you have to look more closely in terms of what resources are provided. So for example, um, Southern Connecticut State does have a uh, child care reimbursement program. It comes out of student affairs. It's uh, $500, and so students can apply for reimbursement for care off campus because there is no on-campus care. Um, but it's not a program that's widely promoted or um, 
students don't don't know about it. Um, and that, I wouldn't say, is childcare, although that checked a box and ticked a box. Yes, we provide childcare. A $500 reimbursement doesn't comprehensively cover all the needs of childcare. That, um, yeah, maybe a week of childcare. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, another example at Central Connecticut State, we do have a early learning program. I'm president of the board of directors and have been for some time for our early learning program. Um, which provides uh, pre-K care for children ages three to five, um, and but it only provides care for up to 26 children, and the center is located off campus. So when we talked earlier about visibility, it's not visible on, on campus. Um, but 26 slots doesn't nearly address the full comprehensive child care needs of student faculty and staff at CCSU. I can guarantee you that. Um, and it only provides care for children ages three to five. So again, a box may be ticked. Yes, Central has child care, but no infant care, no toddler care, and only for 26 children. So um, in terms of what resources are available, um, this is something I think we are working on and we have um, – place for movement. This is something. And because of, and I know we're going to talk later in the program about some of the grant opportunities that have been made available at the federal level, because of some of those opportunities, we are seeing some expanding resources at our community colleges um, and our state universities in the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Joshua is calling from Manchester. Joshua, you're on the show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, what's your question or comment? Uh, um, a comment is in response to um, what our um, colleges could do um, to support um, parent students. Uh, one thing that I've found in my research is kind of going through the faculty route and seeing what instructors are doing in the classroom. Um, and one thing that i found is that they're breaking up the academic work throughout the semester. Instead of having these high-stake exams or papers uh, where it requires, you know, multiple hours to get it done, um, parents or people that work just don't have that time. So what faculty are doing is kind of breaking it up throughout the semester um, so they could dedicate an hour to instead of three, four, five hours to get that paper done. So instead of one 25-page paper at the end, you do a couple papers throughout the semester or a couple small exams throughout the semester. Mm. And are you talking about at community college level? This is what you're seeing professors doing? Uh, yes, and at the four-year level as well. So, you know, having a lot of more parents, um, a lot of people working, they just don't have the time to dedicate to the traditional way of, of educating college students, and that's those high-stakes exams or papers. Um, it just now doesn't work for these students. Um, so then they drop out by, by a, a semester in. Once they get that big exam in, they don't do really well because they just don't have the time to dedicate to it. They start dropping out. So instead... So you break it up throughout the semester. Well, thank you, Joshua, for your call. I just wanted to get Fiona Pearson to respond. Yes. Is this becoming well, more of a trend? Well, what Joshua described is actually better pedagogy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not just for student parents. That benefits, that approach benefits all parent, or all students. Um, and so rather than high-stakes exams, high-stakes projects, um, a, a, a process um, which is referred to as, as, as chunking, taking different projects and building throughout the course of the semester, um, setting deadlines throughout the 15 weeks or eight weeks, depending on how long the semester is that a student is enrolled in. Um, And uh, students learn better that way 
anyway. So um, absolutely, Joshua, agree. And I hope all professors out there are listening. Uh, also in studio with me uh, um, is, again, Brandy Salito, a graduate student at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, Brandy, I understand you lead a group for student parents called It Takes a Village. Why did you decide to put this uh, support group together? Um, when the Women's Center at CCSU, uh, was vol- I, the vo- there was a volunteer position available on campus. And so um, when I went in there uh, and started out, she had just asked, you know, what groups or what programs would you like to bring? And so I just told her my story, how I was a student parent, and I would love to um, pay it forward and help other students because in some of my classes I had colleagues that were parents, and you'd see them rushing in and um, because all of the grad classes are are in the evenings. So I I just saw that, and um, so the uh, the Women's Center allowed me to develop a group that would help um, bring some support for my student parents on campus. And for me, it was it was just really excited about the topic. Um, I lived it, and so uh, I was hoping that it would bring some relief to the parents uh, on campus. Uh, do you hear often from them about uh, trying to balance and figure out childcare, or is it the course load? I mean, what are some of the the common concerns that you hear? Oh, absolutely. So um, I sent out a questionnaire in the beginning because um, it was this whole pilot program it was brand new. We've never had one on campus before, so I had sent out. Um, questionnaires to see what the student parents were looking for. And that's, it was all a mix of, you know, childcare issues was major. Um, They wanted to actually learn about empowerment um, was huge um, across the questionnaires. They wanted to learn time management, uh, even financial skills. Um, A lot of the the students were interested in learning how to just balance budget, how to, you know, balance all of that. Um, And so it was just a broad um, self-care was came up a lot. Um, so yeah, I was really excited to be able to help on campus. You can join our conversation again as we look at student parents on college campuses. Uh, one in five undergrads um, are, are going to school while raising a family. The number to join our conversation, 888-720-9677. I wanted to bring in another perspective from a student parent here in Connecticut. Katia Similian is joining us now. She's currently at Southern Connecticut State University, finishing up her degree in public health. Uh, Katia, welcome to the show. Hi, it feels good to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, right now I'm going to Southern. I'm studying public health. I do have a son. Um, he's five years old. He recently did get a diagnosis of ADHD. So we're kind of working right now with his school on trying to get a plan right now um, for transitioning into first grade. Um, so, you know, he gets like physical therapy, OT, like a bunch of different stuff that we're working with his teachers. Um, so right now it's just me and him that we live together. My mom passed away a couple years ago, and then my dad also passed away a couple years ago. So it's honestly just me and him. I had him back when I was 21. So it was like a couple years ago. And like at the time I was, I started off at going to Housatonic. I graduated there. I got my associate's degree in medical assisting. Then I wanted to continue going into like the health field. So then I went and transferred over to Southern, started doing public health. I do have like the issue a lot since I don't really have that great of a support system where I usually end up bringing him to classes with me in the evenings because right now he's in kindergarten. So he goes through, um, he goes to kindergarten in the morning, then he gets off at daycare. Usually the daycare closes at six. So if I have a class like starting around 5 p.m. or something, I have to go 
and pick him up. Like, I'll leave work, I'll pick him up, and then I got to take him to class with me and stay for the evening course. So I've had that problem for, like, the past couple of months before. I, um, I had a little bit more involvement, but then that kind of, like, broken off. And so now it's just kind of like me relying mm. on myself. I have to take him with me. My professors have been pretty understanding. I did have, like, one professor who was kind of, she was kind of iffy about it when she saw him the first time. She was just like, she thought it was a one-time thing, and then she saw me bring him back the next time. She was just like, oh, you know, she kind of addressed me, like, before class started. She was like, she was like, I don't know what the situation is, but, you know, you have to find someone to watch him. I was like, it's kind of hard to find someone because as a single parent and you don't have, like, a family support, you know, I don't have, like, parents or, like, you know, grandparents or anyone to really be able to say, hey, I'll watch your son while you go to class. So... You know, I tried to look into finding someone to help watch him. It was really tough. I wasn't able to. So the next time, I did miss class. I didn't mm. attend class. I sent her an email. I was like, hey, sorry, I found nobody to watch him. Mm. Um, I'll just reach out to someone for notes. Then the next time, I was just like, I can't miss class again. So I ended up coming back with him. And, you know, she was just like, oh, you're back again. I'm like, yeah, don't really <laughs> don't really have anyone to watch him. I was like, he's really quiet. He's behaved. We sit in the back. So, you know, at that time, she didn't really mind. Like, I, I bought him in for my final exam. I bought him in for, for like, just class sessions and everything. Um, my other professors were totally understanding. They was like, yeah, we don't mind. You yeah. know, he's quiet. He's good. You know, we love him. He he likes to laugh and stuff. So they didn't so mind. So that one professor was the exception. Yeah, she was yeah. She was the one exception. Um, all of majority of other professors that I had throughout the semester did meet him before. So they were okay with it. Most professors are pretty understanding of my situation because they already mm-hmm. know and, you know, being in their class, my grades are pretty good. So I was like, you know, you, you do good. <laughs> your, yeah. your son's, you know, his behavior is great. He's um, well-mannered. Well, can I ask you, Katia, since you uh, started uh, your education at Housatonic and now you're at Southern, uh, did you feel like you knew or heard of more resources to help you when you're at the community college level versus the state university? Can you compare the two? Honestly, no. When I was at Housatonic, um, being there, I I felt like I knew it inside and out. I knew all of the services that were offered to me. Um, I was a part of an amazing program called called FESP there. Um, I was able to get like scholarships, um, awards. But then when I transferred over to Southern, I had no idea because it was a bigger campus. I didn't really know anyone there. So when I actually found out about the the child reimbursement program, it actually was until like last semester, but it was way too late after the deadline for when I was able to apply that I actually found out about it. So I was just like, I didn't even know they had that. I didn't even know they had like emergency funding, like different um, financial things that were able to help out people who needed it. It wasn't, it's not broadcasted on campus. So no one really knows about it. So when I found out about it, I was like, I, I had no idea. And so now I'm trying to see if I could take advantage of it for my last upcoming semester, seeing as my classes are all in the evening. So I'm trying to figure out if I can get a part of that program, because if not, it means I have to take my son with me to class in the evening. And like one of the days that I'm there, I'm going to be there for like five hours. And I don't feel like he would be comfortable sitting with me for two classes for five hours a week. So it's just I'm trying to see if I get um, a part of that. Mm. I wanted to bring uh, Fiona Pearson back in the conversation again. She's the author of the book, Back in School, How Student Parents Are Transforming College and Family. Uh, In your book, uh, Fiona, you mentioned as a professor, a sociology professor, having very, uh, you know, candid conversations with some students uh, who were trying to figure out, how am I going to navigate all of this? And you asked them, you know, you know, why 
do you want to uh, get a degree or what are your goals and ambitions? And so I'm curious when you talk with student parents, whether it's uh, in your class or for your research, uh, you know, what value do they see getting this education for them at this particular point in their lives? Yeah, um, and that's a there's a it's a complicated answer to that, um, and that ended up being a, a, a separate objective of this book. As a researcher, you start off with questions that you hope to answer, and usually throughout that process, new questions emerge. And one of the new questions that emerged as I progressed in um, this research. It was what is the value? What do students want out of this this experience? And um, that turned into an entire chapter, um, and it was based on questions that I asked of students about their aspirations, their educational aspirations, but also their expectations, their education. What do they expect of a college education? And I found um, in my interviews you know, three different types of students emerged. And this applies not just to student parents, but to, I think, all students. And one group of students I categorize as the, the job seekers. And, and these are students who are, when I ask them about their educational aspirations and expectations, their answers are all about um, economic security. I want economic security. I want um, human cap, what we refer to in sociology as human capital. I want skills that will get me a job that will compensate me so I can sustain my family. And so that group of students tended to focus purely on, on jobs and skills and economic security in their answers or credential, what I refer to as credentialing, getting that piece of paper. I need that piece of paper. I've been treading for so long. I need that piece of paper. Another group um, emerged that I called the practical explorers. And this group of students also talked about jobs, but they talked about jobs a little differently. They didn't talk about it purely in terms of economic security. They talked about wanting jobs that were fulfilling. They had parents who had jobs that they hated going to, and they, they wanted to enjoy their jobs. They wanted fulfillment from their employment. And this group of students also tended to talk about what we refer to as cultural capital or social capital. They were interested in being learned people, being able to talk well, gaining respect in their community and in their family or social capital, social networking, and getting to meet people and know people because they know that your future depends not just on what you know, but who you know. Um, so that group of students was interested in job, but it was a more expansive understanding of, of, of job. And then the third group of students is that group of students that um, any liberal arts college president is familiar with, and, and I refer to them as the self-reflective learners. They didn't talk about jobs at all. They, When I asked them about their career goals, they had career goals and aspirations. But when I asked them about education, they talked about um, it, creative thinking, um, helping their children to see the world in new ways. They talked about becoming self-empowered. Um, Brandy talked before about empowerment. I had one student who I interviewed, um, Rose, who was uh, first generation, Turkish, Muslim, in an arranged marriage, and her husband was addicted to gambling and didn't love her. Mm -hmm. And she was in school studying to be a counselor in psychology, and she talked about how her psychology classes and the knowledge she was gaining was helping her to understand her husband's addiction, helping her to understand her faith, helping her to understand her role as a, a woman, a Turkish woman, her, her ethnic heritage. And so, and this was helping her to help her daughter navigate 
um, these experiences. And so what she was gaining when she talked about education, she talked about these issues of, of empowerment. Um, job was something she wanted because she was hoping eventually that her education would provide her with a, a means of addressing her life in a way that would allow her to move her and her daughter to a place that would be better. Um, but these three types of, of, of students emerge. And I, I guess in terms of thinking about long-term effects, my only concern, all three are completely valid objectives mm-hmm. in terms of what students might expect from their education. But I was most concerned about those student parents um, who were job seekers because and, and didn't have the resources they needed. If you were a job seeker and you had resources, um, if you were a job seeker and you had a partner who could help you with income or a family member who could help you with childcare or income um, and you had the resources you needed to navigate the system, you were fine. But if you were a job seeker and you're not connected to your student identity and you don't have those support resources, you are more likely to leave without your degree mm-hmm. and likely with some debt. Mm-hmm. So of all the groups, I was most concerned about those job seekers with few resources. Uh, Brandy Salida, I wanted to ask you as we hear from Fiona Pearson as she talked to uh, uh, many student parents mm-hmm. about, uh, again, their aspirations. Uh, you're a graduate student at Central, again, yes, balancing uh, raising a son, uh, thinking about empowerment, as you mentioned earlier, but also the fact that uh, college is expensive. And you also have to uh, support your family. And at the end of the day, you want to get a job that is able to pay the bills. I mean, how do you how do you resolve all of those, uh, um, you know, concerns as you try to keep going each day? Uh, it's it's a definitely um, a juggle and mind balance. And um, you just have to know what you want. And um, I was fortunate enough um, with my career that I was I was self-employed and I was, you know, started making really good money and um, but always knew in the back of my mind that, you know, the degree is like, you know, like Fiona said, like I wasn't at that point no longer job seeking for my degree, but it was, you know, I just wanted to be, I was a teen mom. So I, I wanted to be empowered. I wanted to, to know about the world. I wanted to feel, you know, less inferior when speaking to colleagues or, you know, uh, in my, out in the world, just, you know, I wanted to understand what was going on. And so that's what drove me uh, to continue to keep going and balancing it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. If you don't have the resources, you're, you're taking out loans, you're taking out, um, you know, child care costs. A lot of uh, student parents that I've learned uh, in my group that I run on campus is that they're actually taking out student loans to pay for daycare, mm-hmm. to pay for their rent, uh, groceries. And so... Um, yeah, if you don't really have a set goal as to what you're getting out of it, like Fiona said, like if you know that at the end of this, you're going to have a job, you're going to be able to pay back your loans, you know that you're going to go on that course, um, you you know you can get through it. But if you're like, I don't even know what I want to be when I grow up, I don't know what this job is going to bring, you don't know what kind of income you're going to be able to get to pay back the cost of, of uh, your education. It could be just very frustrating and then, you know, some just end up leaving with major debt Mm -hmm. and then still no job. And so... um I wanted to ask you, Brandy, also Katia, before we run out of time, uh, it, policymakers uh, do listen occasionally. Uh, looking back at your education in Connecticut, you know, what's one or two things that uh, the legislature could do to, to help student parents like yourselves? I'll start with you, Brandy. Um, I think being able to to allow the resources to be um, easily understood. Um, a lot of my uh, parents in the groups that we run, they they. 
like Fiona said, they just didn't even know. They don't know what their Title IX um, rules are. They don't know what their their rights are. Um, so policymakers need to make it clear, you know, even upon admission, you know, there should maybe be a, a box that you check. Yes, I'm a parent. Yes, these are, you know, just another information that could be helpful so that they say, okay, you're going to get these newsletters or you get these resources available to you easier. And Katia, one thing that uh, you would like to see change for student parents? I feel like they should be able to give out more sources, like resources for student parents to be able to have for situations. I feel like it's not widely known. And then like I know with financial aid, it differs upon people. I know like several student parents who didn't qualify for students from for financial aid because of financial situations, even though it says that they make too much money, they don't really make enough money. So they don't get enough funding for like school. And then they end up taking like a, a lot of loans and stuff to pay for for, mm-hmm. for groceries and for food because they're not able to work because they're also trying to focus on their mm-hmm. education. So there's like a lot of disadvantages where I feel like it should be um, directed more where they should be able to address situations like that mm-hmm. and just be able to like work more with like student parents um, directly to kind of figure out in communities like what do student parents need to, to actually figure out what's going on in their lives and understand their situations. Well, I want to thank you, Katia Similian, a current student at Southern Connecticut State University, finishing up your degree in public health. Uh, uh, we wish you the best of luck. We appreciate you coming in today on Where We Live. Thank you. Also here with us, Brandy Salito, a graduate student at Central Connecticut State University. I should mention your son is also going to be graduating soon. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> we have, he'll have his bachelor's and I will have my master's at the same time. It'll be pretty fun. Well, congratulations and thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Fiona Pearson will stay with us as we broaden out and see how other states are responding again to this change in uh, student population at college campuses and universities around the country. We'll continue our conversation after the break. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about student parents. Uh, Sophie writes on Facebook, I started my grad degree two months after having my first child. It was harrowing to say the least. I'm now in my third year of graduate work and I struggle with consistent childcare, sporadic class schedules, postpartum depression, and burnout. I would say that individuals in my program have been mostly supportive, but the university system often does not seem to consider the issues that parents face. We wanted to broaden out our discussion uh, to uh, trends uh, nationwide. And so joining the conversation now by phone is Lindsay Reichland-Cruz, study director of the Institute for Women's Policy Research in Washington, D.C. She's been studying uh, student parents uh, for several years. Uh, Lindsay, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So we heard from Fiona Pearson earlier about uh, grant programs uh, that are available at some universities, but not all, or some community college campuses. Uh, Tell us about federally, I understand there's something called C-Campus grants. Uh, uh, You've called that grant a drop in the the bucket. You know, why does it fall so short? Yeah, well, C-Campus, when I say a drop in the bucket, I definitely don't want to understate the importance of this program for student parents across the country. It's a, a vital source of financial support for campus child care centers as well as campuses that don't have child care centers but want to provide some financial help for student parents to afford child care. 
It is, however, very small. Uh, it only serves, uh, at this point, around 300 campuses around the country. And according to our calculations, just a small fraction of the total estimated need for childcare among students with children. So it has a long way to go in terms of better meeting the need. But, it, it, you know, partially that's because it's operating in a, a broader broken childcare system in this country. And, um you know, there are a number of federal programs that do help low-income families afford childcare. Um, NC Campus is one that just happens to be targeted at the student-parent population. So, um, again, can't understate how important it is, but if it were stronger, we would see, you know, more help for more student parents around the country. And I'm curious, uh, Lindsay, uh, when you uh, mention these other programs that are available to help parents, are policymakers under the impression because these other programs exist that they uh, are Fit, filling the need or fitting, um, helping these uh, these, these uh, individuals uh, find support, but because of eligibility requirements, that people uh, aren't able to access them. Yeah, so there are large federal programs: the Head Start federal program, the Child Care Development Block Grant, which are billions of dollars uh, in funding. Uh, but as you stated, they often have rules for eligibility that can make it hard for parents in education and training to ac- access them. And we heard Fiona talk a little bit about the rules for TANF recipients in education and training, and that is echoed uh, through um, the child care subsidy programs as well. So work requirements or limitations on the type of degree you can be receiving while you're uh, getting help for child care Um, among others, can be prohibitive for student parents to access the help they need to get that convenient, reliable, safe place for their kids to be while they're in school or studying or going to work. Uh, Meryl's calling in from New Britain, who's part of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. Uh, Meryl, you have something to add in terms of of the subsidies available to uh, adults who are trying to get their degree and also balancing family? Right. Connecticut is one of two states in the country that has no provision for um, parents who are in school to use the child care subsidy program. Uh, we are one of the most restrictive uh, in the country on that. Um, and there is an effort to try and change that. Um, last year, the Education Committee in the legislature passed um, Senate Bill 934, which um, would change that and allow students to be eligible. Um, but it did not get through, get called in the So it looks like you're, you're hoping to try again uh, this session. Uh, but yeah. Meryl, thank you for letting us know uh, about uh, that issue here in Connecticut. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Lindsay, I wanted to ask, are there other states that Connecticut could look to as a model, uh, maybe even particular universities that are responding uh, to this student population specifically? Yeah, and um, I appreciate that caller uh, letting us know about Connecticut's restrictive rules. There are some states like Kentucky, um, for example, or Georgia that have recently removed some of the restrictions on parents in college uh, to receive child care subsidies. So some even uh, red states are removing these restrictions and making expanding the eligibility for parents in education and training to get child care help. So I think those are great models to follow. Um, we're also seeing new investments in states like New York and Pennsylvania that have recognized a particular need among single parents in college, and they are starting pilot programs to understand how campuses can invest in strategic supportive services for students with children, particularly single parents, 
to help them make it to graduation day. So it's been really exciting to see um, both those states kind of take intentional investments in these populations. Uh, We've also seen expanded funding in California, um, $97 million uh, of an increase in Cal grants for students with children, for example. Uh, And there are some states that have longstanding, if underfunded, programs like Minnesota and Oregon, both of which have specific child care grants for students with children. Um, so there are some states that are that are doing some good work, um, and there are, there are more examples of, of states who are using TANF or SNAP to support the child care needs and other needs of um, eligible students with kids. Um, we need to get to a place where the system as a whole does this as a matter of course. We need to be building a system that's, that's adapted to the, the college students of today, many of whom are actually parents. Well, I want to thank Lindsay Reichland Cruz for joining us, study director at the Institute for Women's Policy Research. We'll link to your research on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Fiona Pearson's still with me, uh, again, Central Connecticut uh, State University professor, author of this book, Back in School, How Student Parents Are Transforming College and Family. Uh, we just got under a minute and a half left, Fiona. You know, something I did want to bring up to you is a lot of attention now on the, the latest plan by the Connecticut State uh, University system uh, to now consolidate the community colleges and making them more regional. Is that a concern for student parents who are trying to find resources with, uh, I guess, the structure changing yet again? Yeah, it's um, it's unclear, right? Um, and I think I, I really don't have an answer because I think even the system, we are figuring that out, um, what that will mean for student parents. Uh, Thus far, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the system unfortunately has not been very responsive to us as we've tried to um, propose some systemic change means of communication between the community colleges and the four CSUs in regards to these issues that affect student parents. Um, I will say that um, I've been working with with folks and so, again, I mentioned earlier Michelle Van Cor down at Southern Connecticut State. We have hosted uh, now three different work-life family conferences where we've invited uh, members of the communities of the 12 community colleges, Charter Oak and the four CSUs, and our union recently sponsored the most recent one, bringing together folks so we can begin to communicate with each other. And so I think there we hope to continue um, on that project. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We do appreciate Fiona Pearson for uh, for you coming in uh, to raise awareness about this issue on college campuses. Uh, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>